All right, good morning, everyone. Welcome back to our study of Proverbs. We are going to pick up where we left off in chapter 8, which is the second of three poems about wisdom. And we're going to see some of the threads that we've seen develop through the first chapters all kind of be woven together into climax in chapters 8 and chapters 9 as we get to the second and third of those wisdom songs. And then we move on to chapters 10 and following, which are probably what you think of when you think of the Proverbs of Solomon. Let's begin with an invocation and prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. So, just by way of picking back up, we left off right around chapter 8, verse 13, which of course ties in so wonderfully with the thesis of this first section of Proverbs, namely, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of Yahweh is the beginning of wisdom. And you see that being played upon in verse 13. The fear of the Lord is the hatred of evil. So, you can, if you draw those two parallel, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the hatred of evil. Then wisdom and hatred of evil are one. And we spoke at some length last week about that hatred of evil being properly developed first and foremost as a hatred of the old Adam within oneself. You can think of Romans 7 summarized, the good that I want to do, I do not, the evil that I do not want to do, that I keep on doing, who will save me from this body of death? Wretched man that I am. Thanks be to God through Christ Jesus, my Lord. So the answer is Christ Jesus. Now, who will save me from this body of death? Wretched man that I am. That's the language from which we draw liturgically our confession of sins. Where we say, I a poor, miserable, we could just as easily say, I a poor, wretched sinner. So when we are confessing our sins, we are crucifying ourselves. It's a strange behavior. You turn against yourself. You bear witness against yourself. Don't we have an amendment that protects you from such things? I think it's the Fifth Amendment, isn't it? Where you don't have to bear witness against yourself. But then Christianity is built upon this principle that the witness of the Lord is that there is none who is godly, none who is righteous, no, not one. All have sinned, all have fallen short of the glory of God. And when your mind is converted by that word of God, you see yourself as he sees you, and you confess that what he says is true, and you end up confessing against yourself. I, a poor, miserable, I, a poor, wretched sinner, who will save me from this? Thanks be to God through Christ Jesus, my Lord. Okay, so that's where the hatred of evil begins. But extend, it extends out. And you can see this in verses like this one, of course, but New Testament verses even. Friendship with the world is enmity with God. So you see the, how they are mutually exclusive. If you are going to be friends of the world, then you are going to have enmity with God. But if you're going to be friends of God, you're going to have enmity with the world. So, again, if you're going to follow the master as one of his servants, you're not greater than the master. But if the world hated and persecuted him, so also it's going to hate and persecute you. 
If you're following the light, the darkness is going to try to overcome you. It's not going to be able to. It can do its worst, and its worst is put you to death, but Christ specializes in raising us from the dead. So no fear there. All right, so learning how to hate and learning how to love are two of the major projects for us as we are being conformed into the image of God, to love how God loves and hate how God hates. Does that make sense? Okay, I know that sounds a little controversial. Good, it needs to be. Unfortunately, our 20th century theology and 21st century theology all throughout the church has gotten rather poisoned on these points. So the fear of the Lord is the hatred of evil. Now, let's do a quick run-up, and just then we'll go into the new, uh, the latter half of 13. So again, at chapter 8, verse 1, Does not wisdom call, does not understanding raise her voice. On the heights beside the way, at the crossroads she takes her stand, beside the gates in front of the town, at the entrance of the portals she cries aloud, To you, O men, I call. And my cry is to the sons of Adam. O simple ones, learn prudence. O fools, learn sense. Hear, for I will speak noble things, and from my lips will come what is right, for my mouth will utter truth. Wickedness is an abomination to my lips. All the words of my mouth are righteous. There is nothing twisted or crooked in them. They are all straight to him who understands and right to those who find knowledge. Take my instruction instead of silver and knowledge rather than choice gold. For wisdom is better than jewels And all that you may desire cannot compare with her. I, wisdom, dwell with prudence, and I find knowledge and discretion. The fear of the Lord is hatred of evil, pride and arrogance and the way of evil and perverted speech I hate. I have counsel and sound wisdom I have insight, I have strength. And let's pause there. I'll simply point out a poetic element, which, by the way, is only going to increase the obvious poetry as we progress along through this song to wisdom. But just as there are four things that wisdom hates, pride, arrogance, the way of evil, and perverted speech, there are four things that she has. I have counsel and sound wisdom. I have insight. I have strength. And of course, that's a strength sometimes hidden under weakness, just as wisdom is often hidden under foolishness. And Paul is doing that theology in Romans 1. Okay, we will, of course, have no other option than to contemplate the relationship of wisdom to Christ in the verses to come. I simply point that out here so that we don't have to backtrack and review it. By me, kings reign, and rulers decree what is just. By me, princes rule, and nobles all who govern justly. So again, wisdom, now you can think of this as the, in the abstract, okay? that wisdom, just abstractly speaking, is the counsel of good and faithful rulers. But is that really what's being stated here? I don't think so. I think wisdom, as we're going to see in verses to come, is clearly referring to Christ and that Christ is the one by which kings reign and rulers decree what is just. Princes rule and nobles all govern justly. Now look at, the, look at the parallelism. So by me kings reign, now that's somewhat generic, 
and rulers decree what is just. There's the clarifier. If they're following wisdom, if they're following Christ, they will declare what is just. Look at the exact parallel happen in verse 16. By me, princes rule. Again, it's generic, it's abstract. And nobles, all who govern justly. So there's that language of just and justly. All right, so this, um, by the way, uh, let's do this real quick. Put a, uh, put a hand, finger, bookmark, whatever you have, and flip back, um, or flip yeah, back with me to Psalm chapter 2. I want to show you this. I don't want to necessarily launch off on an entire tangent here. But I do want you to see this and know this, especially in light of some of the misunderstandings that have come to the forefront in regard to the separation of church and state, and how that very American idea has affected our interpretation of the two kingdoms doctrine, and not for the better. And we've lost sight of some rather fundamental things. Okay, Psalm chapter 2, or Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain. The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. Okay. Who is the Lord? Yahweh. Who is his anointed? Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ. So look what's being stated outright. The kings of the earth, the rulers, are they neutral? There is no neutrality. They are either servants of Christ and under him, or they are opposed to him. That's it. There's no neutral secular space, neutral secular government. All of this is a fabrication of our minds. There are kings who are under Christ, and there are kings who are opposed to Christ, period. And that's how we as Christians ought to judge them. Now, in Proverbs, so I'm not done with uh, Psalm 2 yet. If you want to flip back and forth, you can. But in Proverbs, look, by me kings reign and rulers decree what is just. By me, princes rule, and nobles, all who govern justly. These are kings who are under him and under his authority. This justice that they reign with isn't something that they come up with or concoct within themselves. It flows from Christ, who is wisdom, through the kings who rule justly. What of those who rule wickedly? Unjustly. Well, that's precisely what's being articulated in Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage? The people's plot in vain. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his Messiah, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Let us be, here's my translation, let us be free from the tyranny of heaven. God is not the substance and measure of all things. Man is. And we will rule as we see fit. Okay. So again, then, this should help clarify how it is that Christ... I mean, very often we've got in our minds this idea. Jesus is is in control of what happens in the sanctuary when the doors are closed. Jesus has nothing to do with the White House or the Congress or the laws of a nation or a given locale. That's very often how we think. And so when Jesus, or say an emissary of Jesus like a pastor, dares to assert something outside, that, that has application outside of the walls of the sanctuary... Immediately the cry goes up, stop being 
political. Get back into your sanctuary with its four walls and its closed doors, and you can think anything you want to think. But as soon as you come out of that with a decree and proclamation that is public or addressed to public rulers, you are out of your lane. Now, how can that be your understanding if you know what Psalm 2 is saying? It's impossible to hold that understanding. Christ rules not merely over the church and what happens behind the closed doors in the sanctuary. Christ rules over everything, including the secular rulers who are answerable to him. So when they reign in ways that are unjust and unrighteous, we should point them out and say, Psalm 2 is describing you. You are those who take counsel together. You are those who set themselves. You are those who want to burst the bonds of Christ and cast away the cords of Christ, the one true king, from you so that you can rule in your own wicked, anti-Christ, anti-Christian way. It only gets more convincing as we go along. So back to Psalm 2. What is God's response to these rulers, these kings, and then the peoples and the nations with them? He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. I think Rick Warren famously pulled this line out to say, See, God has a sense of humor. He's a rather rather jovial chap. Uh, (laughs) You might not be paying attention to the context there, friend. This is not the polite kind of laughter. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath. Gosh, they've tried as hard as they can for the last 60, 70 years to turn wrath into a four-letter word. It still has five letters. It's just not inherently bad. Wrath is good if exercised rightly. So he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king, <laughs> my king. Now, again, this is the voice of Yahweh. I have set my anointed, my Messiah, my king on Zion, my holy hill. That's Christ. Who reigns when? Well, right now. I mean, and now this isn't the point, but again, you can see how this idea of like, well, well, we're waiting for that time in which Christ will reign for a thousand years. It's already happening. All authority in heaven and on earth have been given to me. Behold the one who is crowned, whose throne with thorns, whose throne is the cross. But he's going to return again in glory. We glimpse that today, this transfiguration, don't we? We even glimpse that power that Christ condescends us. I mean, some folks will be, oh, Christ was a pacifist. Do you remember in John's gospel when the soldiers come to arrest him, what he does? Who is it that you seek? He asks. Jesus of Nazareth. Oh, okay, here I am, arrest me. Here's my, here's my hands behind my back. Ego I me. I am that I am. And with that voice, with that claim of divinity, do you remember what happens to the soldiers? They all get knocked down. Violence. And Jesus, in no uncertain terms, saying, This is happening because I am allowing it. Period. Jesus, when he cleansed the temple and showed great wrath, he fashioned a cord of whips 
And upon whom did that whip fall? Not only the animals. <laughs> Violence. Violence. People who want to paint Christ as a pacifist don't know what they're talking about. And his pacifism is quite limited. And is limited for the purpose of him being the lamb who before his shearers is silent. You can already see this changing when you compare, and Luke means for us to do this, the passion of Christ with the passion of St. Paul. It's a parallel that Luke draws out. Why? To show the similarities that we, along with Paul, will be conformed into the image of Christ, but also to show the differences. Christ, before, as a lamb before his shears, is silent. Any guesses, if you know anything about St. Paul's personality, if he was silent? He most certainly was not. <laughs> Including the use of political mechanisms, such as... Hmm, Is it right for you to scourge a Roman citizen without a trial? So we need to regain our sense of Christ as the true king, reigning over sinful kings, who to one degree or another may rule in accord with his will, that is to say justly, or may rule contrary to his will, unjustly. And we should have absolutely no fear. Now, give honor to whom honor is due. We should be respectful. We should give honor. We should count ourselves as lower. We should present ourselves with humility. But all that being stated, we should in no way bend the knee and kiss the ring of tyrannical, unjust rulers who rule contrary to the one true king. Rather, we ought to speak to them the way all the prophets did in the Old Testament, which is to warn them in no uncertain terms the limitation of their authority and that they will indeed be held accountable for their failures in office. Jesus has just such an occasion in which he schools Pontius Pilate. Do you not know that I have the authority to crucify you or to set you free? Jesus, completely nonplussed, says, you have no authority except that which has been given to you from above. I'm not in the least bit intimidated by you. I'm not the least bit beholden to you. I'm going to be polite, but I'm going to tell you that your self-idolatry, your tyranny, your presumptuousness are disordered. So again, back to Psalm 2, verse 6, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. Now listen to this. This is wonderful. This is the Father speaking to the Son. The Lord said to me, You are my Son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage. This is precisely what we see at the end of Revelation, where all the nations are gathered in under the kingship of Christ. Except for whom? Those who would not have him as king. They're excluded from the nations. But all nations who will recognize him as king are brought in to the new heavens and the new earth. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. Don't spiritualize this. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Who specifically shall be broken with a rod of iron and dashed in pieces like a potter's vessel? The nations who rage, the peoples who plot, the kings of the earth who set themselves, and the rulers who take counsel, all of which who position themselves against the Lord and against his Messiah. 
those are the ones that he will break with a rod of iron and dash in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, that will change the way you see history, because you will no longer see history, you will no longer see victors in wars as a matter of accident, or as a matter of just circumstance. You will see the hand of God, and you will see God using one nation to punish another nation. And that's why we should, with all due warning, and again, respectfully and humbly, warn the people of our nation what's to come. If we continue to pursue a path that is completely contrary to the one true king, he's not going to just sit up in heaven and wring his hands. He's going to have a haughty nation be cast down and destroyed. That's what's going to happen. And history has repeated itself. That's happened many, many times. Okay, well, back to verse, verse 9 of Psalm 2. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now you'll see the end quotation marks. Verse 10, now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. This is why Paul in Romans 13 calls them servants of God or servants of the Lord the civil authorities, because they are in fact beholden and accountable to him. They must be wise. Notice the connection with Proverbs. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the sun, that is, show fealty to the sun, submission to the sun, affection for the sun lest he be angry, and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Now elsewhere we're told that the Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. But here we're not told that. We're told that with the kings of the earth who desire to rule wickedly, his wrath is quickly kindled. While that may well be the case, and while that may even befall our own wicked rulers, you'll notice there's no mention of political party here. Christ doesn't care. What he cares about is righteousness and justice. Even though these curses befall the wicked, look at the final line. And there's where we need to take our comfort, that no matter what befalls our nation, Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Him being the true king. Yahweh and his anointed, his Messiah. Okay, so, sorry for being so political. (laughs) Or rather not. That's specifically the point. We need to regain a biblical frame for understanding our theology. And that's going to become imperative. As we have already seen, government has got its, here in America, has got its foot on the accelerator in terms of trying to lord it over its citizens and to rule in tyrannical wickedness. And again, I'm not talking about any specific party here. The standard is, are they ruling in accordance with natural law? Are they ruling in accordance with justice? Are they ruling in such a way that Christ's church prospers? And if not, then these warnings are ringing loud and clear. And we should be humble, but completely unashamed about saying so. Okay, please. With reference to the first thing, one of the first things you said is when you get political, people go political. I think there's a misunderstanding when we say separation of church and state. 
It's been taught in the schools. It's separation of church and state when actually it's the state should not impose on religion. And we're not taught that. And Mm -hmm. I know I wasn't. Mm -hmm. Separation, which isn't part of that amendment. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's why for many, many years in this country, and I'm not going to make any further statement than this, so if you're going to be critical, just listen real carefully. Um, For many, many years in our country, uh, Christianity and the state were allowed to dwell relatively harmoniously because the state stayed in its lane. (laughs) Right. Please. Yeah, I think it goes back to uh, the tax-exempt status that the church... (laughs) <laughs> gained and they keep us coward right of course in in behaving because we're going to lose our tax exempt status at any time and then it was kind of cemented with the Johnson amendment saying okay you guys if you keep quiet about political things and blah 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 uh, and don't have any uh, rock concerts in your church uh, you can have all this money without paying taxes mm, yeah. and that's that's kept us uh, being stupid. Yeah, yeah. Who, who, said, who said this? I can't remember. You cannot serve God and mammon. What? Does he have anything to do with this? It, it's amazing. I mean, that would be a whole other class, how our theology in the LCMS has gotten mangled because we've attempted to save some bucks. The 501c3 status, um, you know, and I don't really care to comment on the, the civil justice of that, but it's much more limited than most Christians are led to believe. Anyway, basically it means I'm not going to stand up in the pulpit and say everyone needs to vote for candidate A or candidate B, God says so. You're not allowed, you know, I mean, not only, not only does the 501c3 status not allow for this, but frankly Christ doesn't allow for this garbage in his church either, that someone would say, hey, this particular guy you've got to vote for, I'm binding your conscience as a Christian to vote for him. That's so outside of your purview. So the 501c3 status, I think, went to some degree when it was originally agreed upon, and in its essence itself, is like a no problem. But we have gotten coward. This has been leveraged by the state. and We've all cowered into now you can't say anything except, you know, all you can basically do is say stuff that is all contained within your imagination as a Christian. But as soon as you go out and say, no, this affects public policy or public behavior or public faith, as soon as you get outside of the four walls of your sanctuary, now all of a sudden you're being political and they're going to take away your 501c3. Well, I don't know. Take it away (laughs) if you have to. Will Christ, I have no doubt, will find a way to preserve his church? I, it existed for a long, long time without a 501c3 status? No. no. So money, has, money and comfortability have been, a, have been a luxury, but they've come at a cost. And that cost is starting to you know, increase to the point where you go, uh, I think that's too expensive. Morally speaking, in terms of the treasures of heaven, too expensive, right? Yeah. So I thank you for both of those comments. I think they're apropos and right on. Please. So I was looking at Psalm 2 just this week, in fact, and uh, I noticed that in the Septuagint, it actually says, serve the Lord with fear and rejoicing in him with trembling. Mm, Nice. Nice. So how is it here in the ESV? Um, rejoice with trembling. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Is that similar? Yes. Okay, yeah. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Yeah, so there's a joy. I mean, there's a joy and a rejoicing in submitting oneself to Christ and his rulership. And that's what I get from looking at a bad English. Uh, the, The RSV does not have rejoicing in there at all. Ah, interesting. Interesting. Yeah, thank you for drawing that out. Uh, any, other, any other questions or comments? Please. Um, at, in our history and today, well, the Congress opens with prayer. Unfortunately, to put it mildly, we have perverted theology being stated in prayers in our Congress today. 
But in addition to that, and I just saw this this morning, Pope Francis has said that uh, if someone is gay and he wishes to forth, look, searches for the Lord and has goodwill, who am I to judge? And the church is uh, condoning civil unions for LGBTQ and that kind of thing. So this lies at the, in the, at the doorstep of the church as well, C- caving to this power from the state. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, we've known for some 500 years plus that the papacy is lousy. Not really a good influence. Kind of, you know that office of the Antichrist and whatnot. And then you, got, you get a guy like, uh, yeah, you get a guy like Francis, and he says the quiet part out loud. He makes obvious what we all, at least as Lutherans, already know. Yeah, no friend of, no friend of Christendom, no friend of Christ. I, it's hard, you know, it's kind of a, I suppose it's a gift to the true church in this respect, that anyone who's interested in going, uh, the way of Rome, pretty much all you have to utter are those two syllables, Francis. <laughs> so we should be thankful for that at least. Yeah, appreciate that. Appreciate that. I love how Psalm 2 ties into Revelation in the end times when we're. Um, when we come alongside our king as kings. Yes. He right. is the king of kings, and he is the Lord of lords. Mm-hmm. And in Revelation two twenty five, it says, Only hold fast until I have come. The one who conquers, who keeps my works till the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. Hmm, sounds familiar. And... As with earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. Mm-hmm. I like how those two tie together. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And there is, um, yeah. I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't care to like defend drawing it too much a one-to-one, but there is a sense in which the kings of the earth and the kings of this age are replaced by the saints. That's the language of we ruling with him, and that he is king of kings. Well, what kings? Not the kings that rejected him, but now the saints. And he is lord of lords, and we are those lords, just as he is the high priest of a royal priesthood, of which we are. You see, and so thank you for pointing that out. Yeah, and I think that there are there is, I, and I don't know that I want to comment on that particular text in Revelation, but there is a sense in which, of, of course, Christ conquers us. <laughs> By nature, we are rebellious until He strikes us with His rod of iron and shatters that potter's vessel, and then makes of us new and living creatures fashioned after his image. And so there is a Christian way to kind of understand and appreciate that too, that Christ kills us in order to make us alive, in order to raise us. Yeah, thank you for that. In the final judgment, though, when Christ returns, do we not rise with him and then we return with him? And he comes and executes, uh, essentially brings forth his judgment yeah, yeah. with a rod of iron. Yeah. Uh, the whole imagery of sm- uh, smashing the, the pots mm, uh, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. all of that. Uh, I, I think that's the imagery that I was kind of yeah. seeing and, uh, and the link that I was maybe... Yeah. It's, in fact, it's, uh, it's quite graphic. When the Lord returns, uh, you may recall this imagery... Let's see if I can... There it is. Yeah, this is when the Lord returns. This is from Revelation 19. When I saw heaven opened... I'm at verse 11, if you're following along. When I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. Those are his titles. Revelation's already called Christ the faithful and the true. 
and in righteousness he judges and makes war. Interesting. Jesus makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure. Now, where have we seen that description before? That's a description of the saints dressed in white linen. Fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Let me see if... Yeah, maybe that's a good enough place to break off since otherwise we'll just keep on Revelation for the rest because I love it so much. But yeah, that's, um, that's, what, that's what comes right before the establishment of the new heavens and the new earth. So elsewhere Christ is described as writing in this warlike vengeance as he conquers the earth and the blood of the slain is coming up to the bridle of his horse. Which is an image I like to use, you know, when you encounter kind of like this, this argument from a, a kind of American pagan. Oh, I thought you were a Christian. I thought you worshipped the God of love, the God of peace. He would never do anything like that. You mean this guy? You mean the guy with blood up to the bridle of his horse? Yeah, so again, that's what I meant last week by we've got to learn how to do some rug pulls. Because the pagans assume they know what Christianity is and what love is. And of course, they don't have a clue, nor do they actually care. So don't treat it with any respect, the argument per se, but just thwart it and subvert it and leave them gobsmacked. And if you've done that, you've done your job. Okay, so yeah, he's king of kings and lord of lords. Now, again, in Revelations theology, which is apropos for Proverbs and this whole theme... Remember when Jesus is crucified, he's raised. Now he spends 40 days on earth. He shows himself to over 500 witnesses as truly raised in his body. That's the ground of truth for Christianity, irrefutable. And then he ascends into heaven on the 40th day. Do you remember this? When he ascends into heaven... He is enthroned with the Father and the Spirit in Revelation. And that then causes what to break out in heaven? War. So war breaks out in heaven, which, by the way, is where we're going when we die. So everyone thinks, oh, when we go to heaven, that's the end. It's this final place and everything else. And uh, Yeah, okay, well, think a little more concretely, because where you're going is a place where there has been profound warfare. That's why it's not just a new earth that needs to be made, but also a new heavens. There's been sin in heaven. Satan himself was there, and he's accusing the brothers day and night. There's been sin in heaven, there's been rebellion in heaven, there's been war in heaven. That's the place we're going, it's a place cleansed. So as soon as Jesus ascends to the throne, Michael and the archangels cast out the dragon and the third of the stars that he has swept down. Where do they go? Here! Lucky us. And that's why he's... (laughs) That's why he's raging, and that's why everything's terrible, and everything seems to be increasingly terrible. Because, as Revelation says, he knows his time is short. So now connect the dots. When the king comes again, any of you um, Tolkien fans, 
the return of the king. I wonder where he got that idea. When the king returns, he does so for war. And just as, now, when he ascended into heaven, couldn't he have just said, uh, be gone, and, you know, the dragon and everyone else would appear? Sure, but he didn't do that. He employed who to fight? The dragon and his fallen angels. The angels themselves. You, I have given heaven to you. It is your domain. You get busy. You kick them out. And you see a parallel thing happen when Christ returns on the last day. It's different. He now fights himself. Why? Because he has become true man. And he does not come to fight by himself. Again, he could just show up and say, be gone. And they'd all you know, fly and flutter away. And, uh, but he doesn't do that. Why? Because the earth has been given to us and it is our domain. And that's why you see then the whole army clothed in white on the white horses charging with him into battle. On that last day, we will be purging the earth of the wicked And they will be now cast from heaven to earth, and now from earth into the lake of fire. With heaven cleaned and a true victory won, with earth cleaned and a true victory won, now it's time to reset. Now it's time to make all things new. Now it's time to heal the scars and the remembrances and all that garbage. So, again, this is also why, I mean, uh, hopefully, I, hopefully you already get this. If not, I failed terribly. But when you die and go to heaven, you don't get a lobotomy. And it's not just all like, it's nor, nor do you get like smacked in the head with the joy hammer and it's just like, oh, puppies, butterflies, everything's butterflies. No, you remember, you remember the wickedness done unto you. What do the, what do, and done unto the people of God, what do the, the martyrs under the throne say? Puppies, flowers. No, they say, how long, O Lord, until you avenge us? Avenge us for what? They know they were killed. They know the wickedness. They know that justice was not done. They're craving this justice. They're craving to be avenged. And the Lord doesn't say, now, now, that's not very pious. The Lord gives them a robe and says, wait just a little longer. Okay? So there's going to be real concrete Victory, But that means that when you go to heaven, don't expect to get a lobotomy. Don't expect to get like a Holy Spirit hammer and it's all puppies and butterflies. You're going to remember evil. In fact, you're going to know it more keenly and more precisely than you do now. And you're going to be anxiously waiting for the day in which this earth can finally be cleansed and purged. In other words, when you get up to heaven, there's business to do. I mean, I know it's rest. And I know it's comfort, and I know it's paradise, but it's not the end of the story. Not by a long shot. What a terrible story that would be. There's business to do, and the, and the script rolls on until the close of this age, at which point in time a new script begins. A new age begins. All right. So all that to kind of hopefully flesh out a little bit of how you can then look at when it is time that the Lord calls you home. You can find yourself within that context and you can know that he's going to raise you in your body to fight with him on the last day to purge this realm of the evil. Corrupt human beings, just as the corrupt, you know, it was the dragon and the corrupt angels. Now it's going to be the dragon, the corrupt angels, and the corrupt human beings. Out. This is, also makes sense then of that scripture that says, you will judge angels. Yeah, that's what's being said. Out you go. Fallen angels. Gone. You're not going to sit up there and judge your, what are you going to judge your guardian angel? <laughs> you let me fall and skin my knee. Eh, B plus. Now, we're judging the fallen angels by condemning them and casting them out of this realm. Okay. Um, so we've just got a couple minutes left. Anything else kind of on this tangent? I'm enjoying myself. I hope you are. <laughs> Fun to think about. Okay, so back to Proverbs to just round out this thought. I really anticipated getting more than a verse or two today. But that's how it goes sometimes. 
see how this makes sense then and see how this is you know, of the utmost comfort to us. Verse 15, by me kings reign and rulers decree what is just. By me princes rule and nobles all who govern justly. I love those who love me. Again, wisdom speaking. And those who seek me diligently find me. Again, you know, we don't need to like, the Pelagian controversy hasn't happened. <laughs> uh, the, uh, the decision theology that we have to deal with is not what's in view here. This is like precisely as Jesus means when he says, seek first the kingdom of God, the reign of God, and his righteousness. I mean, that's what we've been doing this entire class. We've been seeking the kingdom, the reign of God in Christ Jesus and his righteousness, entrusting ourselves to him, knowing all these other things we need will be added unto us. So look at the parallel between what Jesus says in this section. Those who seek me diligently find me. Riches and honor are with me, enduring wealth and righteousness. My fruit is better than gold, even fine gold, and my yield than choice silver. I walk in the way of righteousness, in the paths of justice, granting an inheritance to those who love me and filling their treasuries." So a lovely contrast and some symmetry between what went earlier in verses 10 and 11. Take my instruction instead of silver. My knowledge rather than choice gold. Wisdom is better than jewels. And now this, these statements that are just fun to play with in your mind, both kind of the congruency and the contrast... Riches and honor are with me, enduring wealth and righteousness. My fruit is better than gold, even fine gold, and my yield than choice silver. I walk in the way of righteousness, in the paths of justice, granting an inheritance. There's the true inheritance to those who love me and filling their treasuries. And again, I think that these are the treasures of heaven of which our Lord speaks. They cannot be attacked by moth or rust or uh, stolen away by thieves. Okay, this is a good place to stop because next week this, and this next section of Proverbs 8 is all about Jesus. And it's impossible to see it otherwise. The Lord be with you.